I'm Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. In this series, we discover the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, the theme of being stuck, whether by choice, indecision, or quarantine. But first, let me introduce to you our host, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Scott Dodson. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Todd. How are you? Good. Well, it's a, a rainy day in Los Angeles, which is uh, quite rare, um, but it's pouring buckets at the moment. And it's just another excuse for us not to leave. So the subject today is is a phrase that I use all the time, and it's a, there's a phenomenon about with boaters, okay? There are thousands, literally thousands of boats that the owners have been working diligently, have been dreaming, have been planning to sail around the world and go on the cruise of a lifetime. And they're still sitting in the marina. And for the most part, they will remain there forever and ever and ever. So this is a kind of uh, industry, okay? So the question I always have for people is, why haven't you left? Because I certainly have left hundreds of times. And I've, you know, Pacific crossings, Atlantic crossings, up and down the coasts, uh, East Coast, West Coast, uh, Europe, the Mediterranean, Africa, up into the Baltic states, into Scandinavia, England. I've left. But I always run into people like, hey, when are you going to leave? And it's kind of like me kind of goading them in a sort of strange way. It appeals to the people like, let me press your button so you'll feel more motivated to leave. But if we go back in history, we can also see that how difficult it would have been for somebody in a village with a small boat that was an extraordinary expense to build in terms of time and labor, how they would leave their nest, how they would leave their tribe and move on and go do trading, say, with another country or something like that. So the people that do get up and go are kind of a special breed. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I grew up in a small town, so it's the same thing. It's a small town syndrome, the small town mentality of wanting to leave but never leaving yeah exactly well in boating it's it's a big thing and it's also kind of interest there's a lot of really interesting historical parallels and and things one of the things about offshore explorer that i that i want to get across to people is that if you take somebody from the 15th century the 11th century or or a thousand years bc a lot of those feelings and actions that we're doing today, the same thing they were doing back then. So it wasn't any different. It was just the feelings were there. So this is a way we connect with the people behind us, you know, in, in the past, is that, you know, we're all kind of relatively experiencing things the same way, okay? And Offshore sort of wants to draw those, those parallels and make those connections so that when you do travel and go to some 
exotic location or you sail into some place and you look at, okay, why in the Virgin Islands is Virgin Gorda called Virgin Gorda? That means in Spanish, the fat virgin. Yeah. Well, it was because Columbus was sailing past it and looked over and one of these guys said, it looks like a fat virgin laying sideways in the ocean. And they said, okay, Virgin Gorda. And then they kept on sailing. They actually never stopped. So that kind of little thing is like, I find entertaining and amusing. And it also kind of informs what the place is about in a kind of general way. So the key question is, is always, why haven't you left? And I was talking to my friend, Tommy. He's got a Down Easter 32, which is a very strong little boat. It's cutter rig sloop, and he's a liveaboard. And I always joke with Tommy, you know, how, how come you haven't left for Hawaii? And this is like his, that's his big dream. But, but Tommy is a real sailor. He isn't the guy that uses his boat as an apartment, right? Who just comes and goes, goes to work, comes back, sleeps on the boat and stuff. Those guys are usually going through a divorce. Um, <laughs> that's... There's like this, we all kind of know what happened. When, you, when you're living on your boat, we know you've been thrown out. Yeah, it's boat of the couch. <laughs> exactly. So this is, a, Tommy's not like that. He's, he's a real sailor. And in the last like 10, I think 15 years that I've known him, he's, he's sailed a, a small boat from Los Angeles to Houston, Texas through the Panama Canal. He's made like several trips from L.A. to San Francisco and back, which is a really tough uphill sled. Uh, he's also made a couple several month-long trips uh, to Mexico and San Diego. So he's not like this retired corporate guy uh, with a max Social Security, pension, savings, all that kind of stuff. Tommy has always been an artist, and his entire life has been about art. He has the character of an early 20th century artist living in a French garret, living, breathing his full life into being. And he also has one of the kindest spirits of a human being I've ever known. So Tommy's a musician. He's a busker. Uh, If you don't know what that is, a busker is somebody who plays on the sidewalk for change. And by the way, they do quite well. He's a boat builder. He built a boat for his daughter for Valentine's Day with a giant Valentine's Day heart as a sail. Just built it. And it was, it, it's an extraordinary. I have some pictures that, that are up on the website. He builds furniture. He's a guitar builder. He's a stained glass artist and actually quite renowned for being that. He also does voiceover, and he's quite a talker, or as we say in the business, a raconteur. But Tommy's real claim to fame, if there's one amongst many, is that he built a Wright Brothers replica, flew it across the country, and it is now hanging in a museum in Milan, Italy. It's just something he said, oh, I think I'm going to build this plane. <laughs> and he built it. So he and I, we talk all the time. 
and I think what it is is that I, I, I go to him because he's a friend, but I also go to him into wanting to do this last trip to Hawaii. And Tommy's a good sailor, but Tommy's a coastal sailor. And I should probably just maybe articulate there's different kinds of sailors. And it's not that one is better than the other or one is higher up and a hierarchy or better. Kind of at the tip top are your blue water sailors. And those are the people that go offshore. They're making crossings. They're going from North America to South America or from there to Australia or from Australia to New Zealand or New Zealand or whatever. And in that blue water sailing thing, there's a class of racers and there's a class of cruisers. Um, racers being ob- the obvious, you know, they, they do these big racing things, racing like a Hobart classic in Sydney. Um, then you have, you know, a lot of transatlantics, the, the Volvo. So anyway, they do a lot of this offshore, really offshore racing, long periods of sailing, 14, 15 days, 20 days, 30 days around the world through the Southern ocean. I'm kind of in that category as a sailor i've done a lot of that in the past then there's the sort of cruiser that's the person that is just going from island to island hopping around maybe maybe make one crossing just to get over to europe for example and i'm going in some later podcasts i'm going to talk about some of the bizarre things like i know a guy who took a motorboat literally about a 36 foot sun seeker loaded it up with bladders filled with fuel and and drove his boat from the points closest to each other across the Atlantic, which meant he had to go against the current to get his boat from North America over to Europe. Well, actually, he got it to Africa first and then over. So a very bizarre story. Um, but I can get to that later. But anyway, the, the whole crux of this is described that certain people want to have an opportunity to go sailing. I mean, I don't take anything away from somebody who's just a lake sailor, for example. Lake sailing can be very complicated. One of the jobs I've had in the past was I worked for um, a vessel towing company, who I won't mention their name because they're not a sponsor. And uh, I worked for them off and on for a number of years and I learned more about small boat handling than I did when I ran a tugboat. I had more of a feel for it and I learned more about boat handling uh, from a tugboat than I did from a big major yacht but if I have to drive a 260 foot mega yacht with a helicopter on the back which I have done you can believe, you know, it's just a apple pie done. So the whole idea is people getting up and going and, and moving on, going on to their next adventure. So one of the things that I've always found that when I start the engine and I say to the crew, okay, cast off the lines, we're going to go. They all look at me with this dumbfounded look like, are you kidding? We're, we're going to go? What? And it's just an amazing thing because it happens all the time. 
they've spent a week preparing the boat to go on these trips and they can't seem to get their head around the fact that we're actually going to leave which is the crux of kind of what the whole story is about Thank you to our founding sponsors, DG Entertainment, for providing the facilities for this podcast. Robbie Davis and his staff for the best in the business. We also want to thank Greg Vivaldi over at Grimelli Industries for their constant and loving support. We're inviting local sponsors to support our podcast. You can find us at offshoreexplorer.org. I love the whole idea of being on the water in a sort of time vacuum. You know, life on shore goes on, we disappear over the horizon, and I always say to Tommy, why haven't you left for Hawaii? And then I state all the reasons why he has to go, okay? One, you can save money. I say, hey, when you're at sea, you can't spend money. Of course, you do use resources like fuel and food. I promise after you stock up and go sailing in the open ocean for 15 to 20 days, you will feel pretty thrifty. Second, when you reach Hawaii, Polynesia isn't that far away. So you just got to think about those adventures. So, And that's the thing that people don't understand about how the sailors of the past linked places together to go, which is how humanity developed. So if you're in Hawaii getting to Polynesia, it's a long sail, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's almost 2,000 miles. But once you get into Polynesia, you can go all the way, almost literally island hop, almost all the way to Australia, which is 10,000 miles. So I always bring up these things. And then one of the things that I keep telling him is, is you got to get away. You got to don't sit on your boat. Don't let it just sit there and get growth on the bottom and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Just keep your boat moving. So one of the things that sailors do is they dream about getting away and seeing the world. They, they plan incessantly for the adventure. I mean, I have known hundreds of guys who have spent years planning or saying oh well you know what i i I really want to go make this trip but you know i'm I'm due for an oil change next week so i really can't go today or i you know why don't you take a trip for us here in california why don't you take a trip to catalina island which is only about 40 miles and they have a casino there and they have buffaloes and they've got all kinds of stuff and nice anchorages oh well i don't know you know, it's just I get there, I don't, you know, da da da. You know, you know, maybe the weather's not going to be good. It's anything for an excuse. The people make these, but the people that do eventually move also have to deal with something that they didn't expect. And I'll use the illustration on the East Coast. There's a lot of boaters on the East Coast that dream about going to the Caribbean and sailing. Now, there's a couple of ways that people do this, and it, a lot of it has to do with their own preparation mentally and a kind of sense of courage and confidence, which I think most people, they have it, they just don't trust it. 
And here's the reason. If I'm in the Northeast and I want to go to the Caribbean, I mean, anywhere from North Carolina up to Maine, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sail across the Gulf and I'm going to go to uh, Bermuda, and which is only like six, eight hundred miles, depending on where you leave from, which is actually quite a short. It's like a three day trip. I'm going to get there. And then I'm going to sail the rest of the way down to the Caribbean. But because it's kind of open ocean, people don't want to do that. They're kind of freaked out by it. I mean, I could understand that. When I first started sailing, about the only thing that I had to navigate with was I used to use a sextant all the time. It was like, okay. I might have gotten a C in math, but I could use a sextant in logarithms and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But I knew how to do that. I I actually still know how to do it. I think, but we're gonna have a we're gonna have a podcast just on navigation. But so you have these people they and they make this sort of jump where they say, okay, look, we're gonna come all the way down the coast, and the the waterway, the intercoastal waterway runs all the way from like New Jersey all the way down to Florida. It actually runs all the way down to the Key West. And you're basically protected as a sailor. There's just, it's like a big channel. It's between islands and there's bays, etc. They go down and it's a wonderful party. You could stop every night, you know, and there's, there's restaurants and it's just, it's a great trip to do. But what happens is if once you get down into Miami and Fort Lauderdale and you want to go to the Caribbean, you're going to have to beat into the wind to get across the Mona Passage, which is the passages between Florida and Hispaniola, okay, which is Haiti and the Dominican Republic. If you all check a map, you can see that it's not a very long trip, but the water there is horrible because the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf Stream comes right up through it. It's like it's like squeezing a giant river into a spigot, and it's rough, and it it could be absolutely beautiful day, but you're gonna have a 15 to 20 knot wind on your nose. So if you're a sailor, you got lumpy seas that don't make sense. You're up and down, right? And you got to keep tacking to get through the wind and to get to this into the Caribbean. Because once you get inside the Caribbean, the sailing can be very gentle and very beautiful, which is why it's so popular. So what happens is the people do this whole beautiful thing. The wife has a great time. They come down. This is great. They go to the Mona Passage. It's a disaster. They finally make it to this to Tortola, which is in the British Virgin Islands. And when they make it there, they have this... Um, marina there and you could find 25 35 50 boats that are completely outfitted and ready to go around the world the most expensive stuff ever made on the boat because it came down to one thing the boat or my wife right so the boat stays he leaves put it for sale adventure over because it's like the hardest thing to do when all they had to do is sail open ocean and go to Bermuda. And all they had to do was 
cross over to Bermuda, which is lovely, by the way, and a very, I, I'll do a whole piece on Bermuda later on in our podcast, and rest, and then just have this lovely sail. It's, you know, 600 miles down. It's, it's easy. It's not a hard thing to do. And the weather's usually nice. The one thing you may have is the fact that it, the, you might not have all that much wind. But, you know, that's okay. Uh, you just, you can make it down there. It's not that hard. So if they did that, then they'd be in the Caribbean and then the wife would be happy. The boat would be happy. Everybody would be happy. But instead, they take the, the other option of going down the intercoastal waterway to, to Florida and going across some of, and listen, Professional sailors like to avoid that water at all costs. That water, the Bay of Biscay, the Bay of Lyon, those are like the worst places in the world to sail. I'm telling you. It's like white water, white caps everywhere, all the time, 24-7. The point about leaving is, is you have, when you do leave, you have to choose the right direction. And you have to do it in a kind of practical and nautical way try not to go against the wind try not to go against the current go with the flow that's my best advice as far as that's concerned i look at the obstacles that are stacked up against the earlier explorers like vasco da gama and i believe i'm on safe ground here when i say that da gama had to deal with these problems to a greater or degree than the average boater does today. And the idea of leaving, going on a weekend cruise or a long-distance cruise today is obscenely easy compared to what da Gama and the first Portuguese sailors had to go through. And the reason is, is first of all, the equipment, the technology. And, and please try to wrap your head around this. The rudder was a new thing. The boat, the ships that these guys went on, they're called caravels. They were flat-bottomed and very difficult to sail. I wouldn't say they were difficult to sail in the sense that they, they floated. They went with the wind, but because they were flat-bottomed, for every mile you would go forward, they would go a quarter of a mile to the left or a quarter of a mile to the right, which is called going leeward, okay? So you have this, what we call set and drift. You know, you set your course, and then you drift off that course. And these boats were like being in an inner tube with a giant sail, okay, and expecting, <laughs> expecting to go around the Horn of Africa, and that's kind of what they were doing. And they didn't have knowledge of the, of the weather. They, they didn't have the knowledge of the currents. They knew some currents. But you have to go back and remember, these people thought the world was flat. They thought, you know, just over there, out of sight, but not too far away, there was a cliff, and all the water went off the cliff. And where we went after that is... Only, only God knows. Literally, only God would know. So da Gama had this new thing called a rudder, which helped him 
go forward and set a course. He was dealing with something that's very much a, a under underreported, under-talked about concept of human development, which is following the currents and the winds. So the reason the Portuguese were stuck going down as far as Africa, mid-Africa, mid about where Ghana is, or Liberia, somewhere in that neighborhood, is because the southern current starts to come in. The southern current, if you imagine South America and Africa, south of the equator, it's, it's a big circle. So the current runs in a big circle. Sometimes it's two, two and a half, three knots. Okay? It, two and a half knots makes a big difference when your boat only goes four knots. That means you're only going two knots. Right? Because <laughs> you're going against the current. So they had a very hard time trying to figure that out. They knew they couldn't go against the current. But in some sort of way of thinking that they finally fathomed, um, they decided to go outside the current, accepting they may fall off the face of the earth because it's flat, but they were going to go outside the current and then make this big, long curve to get around South Africa. Bartolomeo Diaz was the first one to sail around the Horn of Africa and landed in Mozambique. And Mozambique today still speaks Portuguese. That's how long the Portuguese have been there. Now, da Gama, he sailed all around based on the advice of Captain Diaz. And he sailed all the way around Africa using the same technique of going way out into the ocean and not falling off the edge of the earth, which they still believed. Okay, Then they sail up the coast of Africa and around and over, catching another current, which we'll talk about the famous Indian current, monsoon current, and end up in India. Okay, Now, in order to do that, Da Gama spent two years, including 300 days at sea, and he traveled some 24,000 miles to go one way. So these guys had to have a lot of faith. Okay. And even after all of that, he went on a second voyage five years later. Okay. And we're going to get into uh, Da Gama and some of his actions later. And, but I really wanted to make a quick note to, um, to the non-sailor. I said, when we're sailing in the open ocean, we don't stop at night. I get asked this question actually a lot. Um, sailing takes place day and night in almost any kind of weather you can think of. And that's just it. We don't stop and say, okay, it's 11 o'clock, you know, let's... I'll go to bed and anchor the boat. No, it's not what happens. It's just, you just keep going. You just keep going. You just keep going. My point here is that da Gama and Diaz faced the same trepidation and the same fear and fragile self-confidence 
that any sailor faces today when they go to leave a port. Even if it's a quick trip to Catalina or, you know, quick trip to Bar Harbor and Maine or whatever the case may be, wherever you're going to go. Everybody has the same sort of apprehension and trepidation about what's going to happen. And you have to put it all into a context. But when you go to start your engine and you say to your friends, hey, come on, let's get the lines in. We're going to cast off. Let's go. And they look at you with that kind of dumbfounded look like, uh, we're really going to go? Yeah, we're really going to go. And then you drive away. You're sharing the same sort of experience that, that these world explorers experience. Maybe not quite to the degree, but it's the same trepidation, which I find fascinating. Here's a couple of words of wisdom. For all you guys that want to go sailing and go do trips and are planning long trips, whatever you want to do, if you want to go and sail the South Pacific or whether you want to take a charter boat and uh, rent a charter boat down in the Caribbean and, and sail around Tortola, which, by the way, I would highly recommend. It's a great place to go. It's a great place to get your chops, you know, it, it, and it's fun and, and it's just great. Practice going sailing. Even if it's just to take the boat out, half hour, 45 minutes, just get it out of the harbor, put the sails up, sail around a little bit, tack a few times, go a couple of different directions, get used to the systems on your boat so that, that you know them inside and out, and they're just, it's just a natural thing. I sailed uh, a 72-foot Scorpio-class CT, which is a Taiwanese boat, built boat by Robert Perry, designed. Um, I sailed that by myself for years. I mean, I would have crew, but they weren't really competent sailors. They knew how to do a couple of things. But my advice at this point was is to teach your wife, teach your girlfriend how to drive the boat, how to run the boat, how to sail the boat. Don't be the only guy. Boating is a kind of guy thing, right? But teach your wife how to dock the boat. I've seen so many people get injured, you know, and, and, and they can't dock the boat. And then the wife is standing there going like, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know how to start the boat. Don't even know how to turn it off. Right? All because you wanted to stand there and be the captain. My advice, teach people that come with you, and you'll learn more about yourself and more about the boat than you, than you could possibly imagine. The one thing I know for sure is that people are not going to be saying to you, why haven't you left? So there are many reasons why people don't leave the port, and some of them are not always by choice. Sometimes people are forced not to leave, and with the whole coronavirus and everything going on right now, a lot of people are in quarantine or stuck on ships. What is the history of quarantine in the boating world? Well, actually, <laughs> it's funny you should say that, because uh, quarantine actually comes from Italian in Quaranta Giorno, 
means 40 days. And you, the sailors used to have a yellow flag that they put up. And the yellow flag said, okay, that boat's quarantined. There's yellow fever on there. There's leprosy on there. There's chicken pox or there's measles. I mean, you have to remember, measles killed millions of people at one time. So having these sort of quote-unquote pandemics, they realized very early, most of the ports realized very early, that how they were being infected was through travelers. And the main travelers were people coming on boats. So the boats would had to be inspected. The people had to be inspected. And literally, they would go and they would look at somebody and say, okay, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of stories, especially stories in, about the British Navy uh, with, the, with their base in Antigua, where ships would have yellow fever and there'd be 350 to 400 men on a ship. And 90 to 95% of them would die. Okay, but they they wouldn't get help from the land because they were quarantined. And as long as that yellow flag flew, that was it. Couldn't go near the boat. Now, the meaning of the yellow flag is a little different today. It's actually the opposite. A lot of people don't get to do this very often because, like, say, if you're in America, um, you don't have to clear in in America. You know, you could sail all around our ports and stuff like that. and you, You don't have to clear in port to port. You only clear in when you go country to country. But when you do go in to clear it, and my advice is, is always err on the side of, of caution. You know, make sure all your paperwork is together. Uh, just, you know, just be very detailed about this whole thing. And there's a couple of little tricks you could do that, that I learned the hard way was sometimes when you go into a foreign country, they ask you for a crew list. Okay. So, you know, so I go onto my boat and I turn on my copier and I copy a crew list. No, you don't have, you don't have a copier on your, on your boat. Although some do, actually. We used to have fax machines and it's another story. But a case, um, I used to make use handwritten ones. But a friend of mine told me this. He said, make a stamp for yourself. So I went, I went to the local business center, and I had a stamp made. And the boat I, was, I had for years was called Delphus. So I, I had a dolphin, and I had stars, and it, it looked like a real official stamp. So my official crew list, I would write out by hand, who was on the boat, and then I would stamp it with my thing. And the customs officials would look at it, and they would go, oh, this is an official stamp okay like (laughs) this is cool and it was hilarious because they would buy it like this was official if i brought just a crew list in with no stamp on it forget about it okay so right now what it is is when you come into a port you fly a yellow flag so to clear into the country this is clearing into a country you fly a yellow flag then the customs and immigration people know that you're ready to be inspected. Now, most of the time, they don't come out to the boat. You have to go in. But you kind of have to keep all your people together. And you have to go in. Sometimes you have, all of you have to go into the office with your passports. 
and the ship's papers and the crew list and they check it off you're such and such you know you're Todd Bartu you know okay got your check you know here's your passport stamp stamp here's you got to pay x number of dollars to get in the country and you pay all the fees and you get this and stamp stamp a lot of stamping okay stamping is an art okay and these guys take a lot of pride in their stamping <laughs> and I don't mean to be silly about this but they it's a thing if you watch them even if you fly in to the airport, it's the same thing. Okay, you fly in, and they're, they're sitting there, you know, as you come through customs. So today, the yellow flag, to reiterate, today the yellow flag means I'm ready to be inspected. Back in the day, it meant I had some sort of disease. The word quarantine comes from quarenta in Italian, which means 40. And if you look at kind of what's going on now with the virus, uh, with the coronavirus, um, you know, I think you could probably safely say that the panic is with, there's a 40 day window of this panic at the moment, which is, was very intuitive and, and it actually came from a great deal of, of personal knowledge for the Italians to do this. Because that was first used in the 14th century, okay? And they had a lot of plague back in those days. It was not uncommon to have villages and whole regions wiped out because of some sort of virus or plague. So 40 days is, you know, the best I can tell those people that are out there, (laughs) you know, panicking about what to do with the coronavirus. I think we've all heard, you know, wash your hands, don't touch our face, you know, you know, disconnect socially and stuff like this. Well, in the boat world, disconnecting socially is not possible. One gets it, you all got it, you're all staying on the boat, you're not coming to shore. That's it, end of story. And that's how they dealt with it. And so the yellow, the plain yellow flag is called Quebec. It is the international maritime symbol for a Q. It gets me back to the idea of, of vaccinations, okay? Because we're so fortunate to live in this age where there are vaccinations. And I know there's a big movement of people not wanting to give their kids vaccinations and stuff like that. And I, I basically tell them that they're crazy, because this is not a personal choice. This, is, this has nothing to do with your personal liberty, has nothing to do with personal choice. This is an obligation that the society has placed upon you to live in that society. If you don't fulfill that obligation of being vaccinated, regardless of the, the minimum, minimized little problems that could possibly happen with vaccination. This is where society says this is all for the good as a group. Okay? It's a part of the social contract. You break that social contract and you will end up with something like this, like the coronavirus, even though there's no vaccine for it. All right? The virus is a virus is a virus. There'll be a vaccine eventually. And people say, oh, I'm not going to take the vaccine. I'm not going to get a shot. Get the shot. It's not a personal decision. 
It's a total societal decision. End of story. And that's why they have flu shots, too. Precisely. Exactly. It's, to, it's not just for you not getting it. It's for the rest of us. Okay? And nowhere do you learn more about group responsibility than being on a boat. If you sail on a boat with a number of people, okay, captain has a responsibility to everybody on that boat. The captain is, is in a sense, and it's still in maritime laws today, outside of God, the captain is the supreme authority. I mean, I've had many experiences where I've driven boats for owners, okay? And they come on the boat and say, oh, I want to go here, I want to go this, I want to... And I'll say, no, that's, going to, that's dangerous. The weather shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. And they get mad. It's my boat, I can do with what I want. I said, but no, as long as I'm on the boat with my license, I'm responsible. Because by law, he's not responsible. Even though he owns the boat, he's not responsible for the boat. I am as the captain. And I'm also responsible for putting up that yellow flag if I have yellow fever or somebody's sick on the boat. You see? So this is a, it's a timely kind of conversation to have about, you know, the yellow flag. And I think if you're interested in the story, you could find it on my blog, on Blogspot. Uh, offshore explorer stories and many of the things that I'm discussing you can find there thank you for tuning in if you like this podcast be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Stitcher Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts also be sure to leave us a review you can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org our theme song is sung by Paulette Nick Williams until next time fair winds and calm seas there we go.